I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So as I say at basically the start of every single episode, if not actually truly at the start of every single episode, I'm really excited about my next guest um, because I only speak to people I really like and admire. And I've gotten to know my next guest a little bit, but they're one of those people I feel like I've known for a long time. So I want to welcome Nick Govier. Nick is the founder and CEO of Blurred a fast-growing global management, sustainability, and communications consultancy based in London. She's a regular feature in PR Week's Top 10 Power List, and in 2021 was named PR Communicator of the Year. But the last five years have been a whirlwind of personal challenges and change, from facing leaving a business with nothing after building it for 12 years, to facing a cancer scare during the pandemic and for being proudly neurodiverse, dyslexic, and ADHD, to deciding to be very public about having had six miscarriages and advocating for a charter for female health in a sector which is predominantly female. So if you know anything about communication sector and the PR world in particular, it is full of women. So to think that it's a sector that has not actually explicitly looked at taking care of female health is pretty mind-blowing, but perhaps not surprising unfortunately, (laughs) but that is changing. So Nick says the world is changing at an unfathomable pace and we're seeing the blurring of lines between corporate and consumer, between internal and external, between marketing disciplines, between what's real and what's fake. At the same time, there's an increasing desire from human beings to understand the businesses behind brands. But for too long, corporate reputation work has not been given the full creative treatment. So if, like me, you have worked in or around communications, that will probably resonate. If you are somebody who just likes advertising, that might resonate. And probably if you're listening to this, you are more of an ethical consumer than the average person. So this probably makes sense to you. Next, Blurred co-founder Stuart Lambert said, the typical agency offers to clients in an uncertain world is to help them navigate, but it's a defensive posture. Actually, Blurred, we believe in uncertain, blurred world that's packed with opportunity for companies to grow and innovate. So I like that approach. It really lands with the discomfort practice of with challenges lie opportunities. So we're going to talk about not how Nick survived, but how she also thrived with a new business and a sense of mission. We'll talk about how she's navigated things like a loss of identity, loss of pregnancies, loss of businesses. And the importance of no agenda meetings with people you don't know, which actually is how we've gotten to know each other. Sort of, I don't have an agenda. I just want to know you. And actually, that was me not knowing that that is actually Nick's approach. So you really do meet the people you're meant to meet. So Nick will talk maybe about the profound power of having a coach for you and your team and choosing guts over fear and why a mindfulness practice is crucial and the strengths of neurodiversity and the power of you and your team being your truest, best selves. So we're going to talk about how Nick is really 
focused on and doing a really great job as far as I can tell and building an organization that can hold the future. And that's really why I've invited Nick today, because I think I know she's doing a fantastic job of that in reality, not just talking about hiring diversity and having diverse perspectives and taking care of women's health and protecting people who work for her. She's actually doing it. She's building an organization that has policies and approaches to recruitment and how they treat people. And let's hear about how that looks as a result in the outside world, in their work and what influence that can have, because that's the kind of organization we all want to be working in, right? And hopefully leading. So Nick, I'm really excited to hear your thoughts today. Welcome. Thank you so much. And um, I knew you were going to say some of those things, but it's still amazing to kind of hear it all. It's a bit like, wow, <laughs> you know, in terms of challenges, in terms of opportunities, in terms of it all, that to have somebody kind of summarize so much of my life is just amazing. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Well, it's why I do the intro in front of the guest rather than record it afterward or or beforehand, because I think it's just it's so powerful to hear yourself mirrored back from yeah. someone else and just be like, oh, wow, that person is awesome. <laughs> oh, wait, that's me. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? It's, it's a helpful reminder for the for the dark and gloomy days. So thank you very much. You're sitting in the rain in, in Dartmoor in the south of England and you have, people can't see it, but the cheeriest, most floral wallpaper behind her. So I think that's probably a great metaphor for you, Nick. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. Definitely half, um, plus half full kind of person. So yeah. yeah. Bringing it with the chintzy wallpaper on a rainy day. Yeah. Absolutely. Think... Every time, every time. <laughs> Great metaphor. So the first question I always ask is the same and it is what's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Oh my goodness. I've had so many uncomfortable moments. Um, I guess the most profound from my early days was, um, Perhaps not one specific moment I can remember, but they've clustered together in my mind. But it was um, the fact I was undiagnosed dyslexic um, and, as it turns out, ADHD, and, as it turns out, possibly some more things as well. Um, but my um, school reports constantly being filled with the likes of um, careless, lazy, various other things. I don't think they actually used, I don't think they ever actually used the word lazy. I think that's the way I interpreted it. But it certainly felt to me um, deeply uncomfortable because it didn't feel reflective of, of the, who I actually was and clearly who I actually am because I'm none of those things. Well, I am. I'm, I am quite careless, actually. That's that's fair enough. But um, I'm certainly not lazy and I'm certainly not stupid, um, which also was an implication that I constantly read um, being in the bottom sets for a lot of things and just that underlying notion of, you know, perhaps not that bright. Um, so there was great discomfort in that, in being categorized that way, but also, you know, un unfairly <laughs> categorized. But I'm incredibly lucky because my parents were quite progressive and I'm, I'm 47 now. And I think I was about 12, 13, maybe when um, they got me diagnosed for um, dyslexia. And it actually, it literally changed everything because suddenly there was, it was knowledge and with knowledge comes power, you know, and actually what they, what, what it said was, no, you are smart and um, you're creative and you've got bags of potential. You just are going to really struggle with certain things in life. So, you know, I was a proper early adopter in terms mm -hmm. of a laptop and all of that kind of stuff when they were, you know, literally bricks in suitcases. Um, but I'm also always conscious because so many people talk about neurodiversity as a superpower and 
and it is to me but what i always always say is it is to me because i was from a um, middle-class supportive family who could help me lean into that mm. you know whereas i'm so super conscious of all the um people who are undiagnosed and who just stay forever categorized um unfairly and are unable to reach their own potential so it was definitely a discomfort moment but I have spent my entire professional career proving everyone wrong. You know, those people who who did write me off. And, and that has certainly been a huge drive, um, which has been positive and negative. You know, sometimes, I, I you know, I'm constantly working on not needing to prove it anymore. <laughs> you know, you've done that. I think people know now. Um, but yeah, definitely discomfort because identity is such a powerful thing, isn't it? And be feeling that you've been mischaracterized i remember even at young age it's sitting really uncomfortably with me wow i love that you have embraced that and also the sting of that the hardship of that you've healed but it's also something that still drives you to make sure that other people don't experience that and that you are hypersensitive to it and that's not a bad thing in fact it has influenced heavily the way you build your organization the way you build your teams so it so much has it's like we're we're absolutely about people being their true best selves and that first word true is perhaps even the most important one it's like it's not about bending everyone um to the person you know that we believe this company needs to embody at all it's about the company being able to flex and bend to each individual and and that's why we have a super diverse team in terms of every kind of diversity you could possibly imagine and um and, and that's super important to us but the company needs to flex you know because if you tried to force me to fit into a neat little box i just can't and i will fail do you know what i mean it's like and that's the approach we take with everybody um because i kind of know what it feels like to be you know underrepresented or or, or miscategorized and like i said mine's a fortunate story so i'm, I'm super mindful of of people who perhaps haven't had those opportunities. Mm. I'd love to dive into your views on what diversity actually means, because it's such a buzzword. And, you know, there are a million billion diversity and inclusion consultants out there being hired by companies who I'm, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They want to do this better. It's also being something that's regulated more. So they have to do it or they have to be seen to be doing it. But you're actually grappling with the reality of that. So it would be interesting to talk about, hear your thoughts on what are the benefits of true diversity? What does that actually mean? But also, what are some of the challenges? Because you said that a really, really helpful point about unless you understand it truly, you're setting people up to fail. So how can you actually benefit from true diversity while also setting people up to succeed and and just completely changing the lens through which we see what is normality because it's such an unfair benchmark, isn't it? So wander in there at any point you want to start at. I think it's firstly about the motivation, right? What is the motivation for wanting a diverse workforce? You know, I am in part motivated because I want to do the right thing. But massively, it's also because I believe it is essential for my company to truly, you know, realize it's ultimate goals and ambitions you know we uh, my, my clients have deeply complex problems that simply cannot be solved by a single sector of society that's when we end up in a really negative um place of group think where everyone looks the same and sounds the same and has the same educational background and funny enough 
therefore have the same perspectives. I absolutely um, am willing to say that I may be, you know, one of the oldest and most senior people in my team, but there are people in their 20s in my team who have far better perspectives on certain things than I will ever do, such as social mobility, for example, or, or DEI. So for me, it is it's fundamental for us to truly, you know, be up blurs collective best self. But you're completely right. It's there's loads of people who might just tick boxes and just hire a diverse workforce. But unless you put the work um into creating the, the right kind of culture, you, you know, they're gonna walk out the door as quickly as you bring them in. And I am genuinely talking about proper diversity in terms of, you know, neurodiversity, socioeconomic background, ethnicity, gender, um, age, religious belief, um, you know, physical and mental ability, you know, and we actually genuinely span that entire um spectrum albeit as you can imagine um an individual we've hired who, who is challenged in the mental ability area um you know his job is very specific um and it's, it's things like making tea and and watering the plants but it is a a paid role for someone who lives in supported housing that gives him enormous pride and he is part of our organization whereas everybody else um you know and bring bring something else in terms of you know client advisory that is essential but you can't assume that everyone comes with us from the same on the same footing if that makes sense you know if you want to do this right you've got to um lean in and be willing to change as as a business to adapt to either you know physical abilities but but also for example socioeconomic um background and experiences we've had situations where we've had to explain to people you know, what, what you and I would very much take for granted in terms of understanding what's appropriate to wear or not wear or or, or language to use in client settings, for example. And I, I won't tell this particular story because I'm conscious that we've got a broad audience here. But, you know, sometimes I've mentioned um, a situation where I had to do this and people have laughed because it sounds funny. But it's not funny, you know, it's it's because... And not everyone has had the ex- ex- same experience of understanding what it is to be in a professional environment. Yeah. So that is vital, is is properly giving people the the space and the support to be their true best selves. And part of that is genuinely them knowing that they are welcomed as themselves. And that's why I'm so open about my neurodiversity. And, and look, I, I haven't formally been... Um, diagnosed with ADHD but I'm going through a very intensive process with my children at the moment who are highly um neurodiverse and and we are we have a specialist neurodiverse um therapist who's helping me and my husband navigate the situation and she said to me literally this week you know I would bet my house if we assessed you as well you have ADHD and you have some strong autistic traits as well Mm. you know so so of course I can't be expected when, when you add on top of that dyslexia and slow wave parasomnia which is another sleep condition you know of course i can't um just fit into other people's classic boxes so why on earth should i expect anyone else to but instead we say you know what people bring is is a useful and vital perspective and and i know that's true of me you know don't ask me to put things in my own diary and and you know, get the week right or um, be able to spell anyone's name. But I bring something else, you know, and that's the same with everyone, really. It's it's such a beautiful articulation because I think 
Yeah, it helps people listening to this to maybe get a mental picture because I mean, it's having a podcast is a funny thing because I don't necessarily know who all my listeners are. I don't know who the audience is, but I can kind of assume based on the subject matter that there's probably, I can probably imagine the, the avatar, the pen portrait of who's listening to this. And we probably do think very similarly, or we have a similar background that's led us to this, this interest in discomfort and personal development and mindfulness and these subjects. And, you know, I bring in a lot of people to talk about gender and things like that. So I think it's useful for us to remember that each of us has our own limitations because we each have our own perspective. And it's not about just painting this on like old white male leaders or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's also great to to highlight that you yourself are a leader. You know, you've been very open about your own neurodiversity, your own, you know, struggles with various things. And it's it's how you lead. And that if we have more and more diversity of leadership, it's going to change the way cultures are built in organizations and the way policies are constructed to support people. And, you know, so much of Well, so much of culture is structural, isn't it? You know, you can say you want to hire diversity, but if you actually don't do things to build up a sense of belonging, a place that actually helps people to get up to speed, you're not going to succeed. So I think that's a really useful thing to keep in mind. It's actually the the implementation that is the most important part of building. And doing the work, you know, you've got to do the work. And um, we do the work in all sorts of ways. But what what I love is um, we used to have six monthly check-ins like kind of DEI check-ins and um and and then but more and more people within the team started bringing their own subject matters and saying I want to do an extra one on x or y you know brilliant one of our brilliant young consultants Natalie said I you know I've read this book on the authority gap which is about you know why weren't women are perceived as being less credible than men you know she did that she just bought that an hour-long presentation and then discussion and, and then we had another one on um Oh, typical my this is my appalling memory i now have menopause which is an absolute joy to add to my list of uh current discomfort i can't remember half the things i've started to talk about but um it was about the importance of cognitive diversity and i i, I don't just mean in terms of neurodiversity um but literally like how different um backgrounds right across the the piece can kind of influence different things and and how much do i love that that just my team members like, i want to come in and do this talk on this or or somebody who has a, a physical disability is like i want to come in and talk to people about what this actually means for me i love that and i have a bunch of people who will lean into that you know where we want to know it's like tell us educate us so that we can be you know better but we also expect everyone to do the work themselves as well you know it's um but it's not it's not it's not easy, but I, without doubt, the, it, um, it will pay dividends. Do you know what I mean? It, it's, I've believed so fundamentally in the B Corp principles. We are a B Corp of people, planet, and profit. And I fundamentally believe if you lean into the first two, the third follows. You know, I fundamentally believe that. There might be more steps and, and harder because you don't just bring someone in and it looks the same and pop them into roll and off you go. You've got to do a lot more work. But what you get back, um, and I don't just mean in terms of loyalty, I mean in terms of people's opinions and perspectives that enrich everybody else around them m- more than, you know, it's not a sacrifice in other words. It genuinely is not a sacrifice. And there is no way I would want a team of people who look the same and sounded the same and had the same background. 
no way. I love, you know. I love that it, it's fun. Like you can hear it in your voice. You can hear it yeah. in your energy. It's not that this is some heavy, do-gooding, progressive, you know, it's actually fun. It's necessary and it's good business. And also just for anybody listening, the acronym can be a di- bit different between the US and the UK. DEI is diversity, equality, and inclusion. And if you don't know about B Corp, it is a really brilliant certification that businesses, lots of big brands are actually going for B Corp certification. And it basically is a really rigorous process. I myself have worked with businesses to take them through it. That looks at things like how you treat your employees, how you treat your supply chain, what your environmental impact is, what your social impact is. And then you are a B Corp certified company that says you are good for people and planet, as well as being a good business. Like Ben and Jerry's is a leading B Corps, just to to sort of put that out there. But yeah, it's I love what you're saying about like you have to do the work. It doesn't just happen by accident, but it's like having a good relationship or creating a good solution to anything. It requires work, but it can be fun. It's like, you know, I always think that with, you know, with kids and stuff, there's a reason you have to go through nine months, you know, hell and then labor, you know, carrying a child. It's like if it was easy, you know, you wouldn't give as much kind of back to it. And I believe anything worthwhile is often to require more work. But then the the joy you get from it. And like I said, I love learning new stuff. We do this thing with our new joiners where they um, everyone does their desert island discs and then it's added to like a company playlist. But, you know, the, the music I have been um, introduced to, um, you know, coming from all sorts of kind of cultural backgrounds, you know, there's no way I would have any knowledge of a lot of that if, if, if I just stayed within my own, um, you know, natural frame of reference. So I just I just love it. You know, I love I love learning more and, and that's, it makes it a genuinely better, more exciting and a more impactful workplace. So yeah, I wouldn't have it any other way. Well, so structurally, let's talk about some of your policies, because I know that you have a miscarriage policy and that morphed into a broader grief policy to support your team. So, because I think this is really something that few people kind of get a look under the hood. What are the structures that actually support the kind of diversity you're building to create complex solutions to the complex issues that your clients bring to you? You know, what are some of those policies? Yeah, we have all sorts of, we don't actually have a menopause policy anymore, um, specifically because we just categorized it more broadly as grief, because grief can come in all shapes, shapes and sizes. And um, and something that might impact someone on paper might not look like such a big deal, but it might be, you know, incredibly important for them. And um, again, you've got to put your money away in your mouth is we, We've paid out in the last two and a half years something like the equivalent of 11 and a half months of full salary for people with grief. And that was, we had one particularly bad year, not last year, the year before, where it was just an extraordinary amount of cancer-related grief. Extraordinary for a business our size, you know, it, it was it was just horrific. Um, so we support um, people through that, but we then have a menopause policy, which actually was put in place well before um before I needed it now I do need it which is great but we also have things like transitioning and um, fertility all, all sorts of things um I'm not sure I suddenly thought of this yesterday whether we have an official women's health in terms of periods policy but if not we will have one but we obviously provide products and all that kind of stuff but but it's a mix of um extra coaching and support financial support so for example I had my first um 
kind of paid for private menopause clinic appointment today. And that was, you know, from our policy. So I could have waited. Um, but I had a, you know, a, a, a really bad, um, I will overshare here, but, you know, last week I had a panic attack. I've never had a, well, I think I had a panic attack when I was maybe 15, but, uh, you know, I've never ha- had one before. So I felt the need that I needed to get this sorted sooner rather than later. And um, it was basically, you know, having quite a stressful life hit with ADHD hitting a hormonal surge, either a surge up or a, a drop. And that resulted in a panic attack. So I'm so, you know, at least I can use our policy to ensure that, you know, I booked the appointment on Tuesday. I had it today. So we support people in all sorts of ways and um, interest-free loans and time off and total flexible working for all sorts of different things. But essentially, I think everyone just knows no matter what they're going through, um, if they need support, we're here for it, you know, and, and we will always um, support people. I mean, we even have, for example, this is a, uh, this isn't the right term. So forgive me. Um, it, it's not a, it's not called a hardship fund. Um, not, that's not the right language, but we, we have the ability for people to access money, you know, in, interest free on a loan with no questions asked. You know, we have lots of things like that. Cause again, it's just about trying to support people, you know, regardless of what they're going through. And again, it, it's patronizing to assume we all want the same things or need the same things. And that's why even our, our um, benefits are totally personalized because, you know, what I might want and need as a 47-year-old mother of two might be completely different to what a 22-year-old um, single person might want and need. So, again, it's all about the individual and how they can be their true best selves. And do you consult on that? Because I think... What's also a good point here is that you don't have all the answers for people who have a completely different life experience and needs than you. So how do you come up with these policies? What's your process? Well, we have a, we do an anonymous um, employee survey every six months and we have a 97% approval rating, which I'm super um, chuffed about. And there is consultation as well. So um, people are in, invited to, you know, to always talk with us. Um, our manage, my managing director kind of oversees that. but. You know, if we don't have a big take up on something, um, you know, we we take it out, we add new things in. So it does evolve each year. And this is an example of something I'm really proud of. So we had a pot of money that people could use for their own well-being, but it, people weren't using their full pot because it was quite um, cumbersome, really, to like every week if they did a yoga session to, you know, expense it back, even though we we pay expenses on the day they're submitted, which is I'm really proud of. So instead, um, our FD and MD said, instead, we're just going to pay it all to you, um, like as part of your salary every month. Did you know what I mean? Now, lots of people would not have done that because they'd be like, you know, it kind of works for us that people don't take their full allowance. But I'm really proud that that's the kind of company, you know, we are, that it's like, no, we want you to have a, this well-being pot. We want you to use it. We want to make it as easy for you as possible. But that's why, as well, you know, the gold star um within our whole benefits um policy is coaching fortnightly with you know the best in the business and um but on top of that we do all sorts of funded talking therapies as well but but that you know is what always comes back in all the feedback as being you know the most useful um of all benefits because it is you know an hour every fortnight to you know really lean in and, and get that support and sometimes it's used for personal stuff it doesn't have to all be you know, for work, but it's again about 
how we can support individuals and being their true best selves. And, you know, coaching has literally changed my life, you know, genuinely did. So it, it made sense to me that I should put that right at the very heart of this business when um, me and my fellow founders decided to um, create it four years ago. It also sounds like you have the right fellow founders. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Which, that makes yeah. such a, it makes such a difference. Alignment on values is, is everything. And, and this coach, who's, she's also our non-exec director for people and purpose. She chairs our board. She's significant. You know, she's also the final interview for anyone who um, comes to blood. And she's not then interviewing people in terms of can they do the work. We, you know, that's already been achieved. She is then on values, you know, and what are they going to, bring in terms of um values and um being able to bring us all together you know because i don't care if someone's brilliant in their job if they're divisive you know that's not going to help anything so it's truly at the heart of um our business well she is truly at the heart of our business i love that it just is so clear you appreciate that humans are complex and different and you can't just plug them into a role and be like forget who you really are this is the role you have to do because I know that's going to land with so many people who have left jobs or are thinking about leaving jobs that they are supposed to be the job and forget about the rest of themselves or just try to like bit of themselves small when they're at work because we all just want to be able to be ourselves in all areas of our lives these days, don't we? Yeah. And look, look we don't always get it right. You know, I, I, I wouldn't want to paint a picture of perfection far from far from it you know we, we get things wrong all the time but but we try and and you know it's a bit cliche being on a journey and all that but it is it's like you know we can't ever settle and you know keep pushing ourselves to be better you know all the time and um and sometimes we get it wrong but but it, we've built a, a business and it's it's structurally really to genuinely lean into this stuff. And um, you know a bit about B Corp, like you said. And um, we got a really high score the first time we applied, which doesn't normally happen. That's well. No, it doesn't happen very often. Doesn't, but, but it's because the business was genuinely built on that foundation. It wasn't like we were like, oh, we should do this, we should do that, we need to do that in order to get B Corp. It was like we just literally told them what we already did. And it's because we built that you know, foundation with these principles in mind and, and, and the company has flown, you know, it really has. And, and that's why I'm just the biggest believer in, in telling the world that, you know, you can deliver in terms of people on planet and truly get profit. You really, really, really can, you know, we are, we are proof of that. Um, you know, and it makes me incredibly proud. Are there any, any things that you haven't gotten right, but have learned from in this approach that you would be up for sharing. I've just kind of put you on the spot there, but Nick, I think you're probably pretty good about sharing this stuff. So I'm going to throw that out there. Yeah, there's some people stuff that, you know, still haunts me a bit. Decisions made in COVID, for example, you know, where I remember we were, we'd offered someone a job and, um, and he'd accepted and was working at his notice and then COVID hit and we withdrew that offer. You know, that still haunts me now. I know why we made that call because we were a, a year old. We had one year's worth of profits in the bank, which were not big because it was our first year. And, you know, we took pay cuts as a board before we did anything else. Um, you know, and, and then I you know, did support that individual actually to ensure he was furloughed because believe it or not, his employer at the time just decided not to bother. So I did make sure that was covered. But, you know, that 
haunts me. Um, we had somebody else early doors who had, who got cancer. Um, and this was when we were, I think, six months old. Someone senior in the team, brand new to the team. I think they'd been with us maybe a month. And actually, we really did support them um, well above and beyond statutory, like well, well, well above and beyond. Um, but then that individual came back to us after luckily coming out the other side. Um, but they came back like a week into, into lockdown and COVID and fundamentally couldn't cope, you know, um, and they're no longer with us. And actually, I'm still really good um, friends with this person and they're coming to stay actually in a couple of weeks time. But but still, like, you know, I do wake up at night and I'm like, did we handle that right? But it's difficult because ultimately we are a team, you know, and 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 just because we and I'm not referencing this in relation to that particular individual, by the way, who is brilliant. But just because we believe all these things doesn't mean that everybody we hire is going to work out with us, because sometimes, you know, they're not up for this and the role is not we're a very challenging company to work for, mainly because of the subject matter. When when you work in ESG and purpose, you know, the ESG side of it is human rights. It's you know, a climate crisis. It's, you know, horrors around threats to biodiversity. It's not easy subject matter, you know. Mm-hmm. So we are a challenging business and sometimes people aren't up for it or up to it. And that doesn't mean we'll just, you know, forever be able to just keep working away. You know, sometimes we do have to say this is no longer um, working and it kills me. <laughs> but ultimately, you know, I've equally got to think of the unit and the people that need support from other team members. So it, so in short, it's the people stuff that tends to haunt me. It is the people stuff that tends to haunt me. But but we end every management meeting and every board meeting by asking the question of, do we believe we've done the right thing by people, planet and profit? And if I hear yes from everyone too many times in a row, I will stop and go, I really want everyone to spend 30 seconds and then answer that again. You know, so it doesn't become automatic. And and I do think that nine times out of 10 or even 9.5 times out of 10, we do, you know. But of course, there are times when we're driven by fear, you know, like COVID when that first hit. Um, you know, when we might not make the decisions we're most proud of. Um, but I think you've got to own them, you know, that's the thing. You've still got to own this stuff and be like, right, what can I what can I learn from this for next time it, it happens? That's such a beautiful model of leadership in particular to just say, to say it out loud. Sometimes I don't get things perfectly right, but I learn from it. And yeah, I think probably a lot of people here who've managed people or had to lead hard decisions can relate to what you're saying. There's, It's hard not to sort of feel a sense of shame when you're like, I probably could have done that better. I probably could have dealt with that differently. But also then being compassionate towards yourself and treating yourself as a human, as a leader is really important. Yeah. So obviously, well, I actually do have a question about the sector because having worked in the communications and agency and consultancy sector, I know the pace can be brutal and it can be long hours, really fast moving how do you navigate probably the need, the demand for how you work as a team with, you know, how do you square that with the the drive to help people work sustainably, to take care of themselves? You know, when there probably is a need sometimes to work long hours, work fast, it's probably stressful. So how does that work in your particular team, your particular sector? Because I know, <laughs> I know the sector very well. Well, it's a simple answer that we don't always get right again, but we charge a lot, frankly. Yeah. If 
we always say to people, if if you're looking for cheap, go somewhere else, you know. So so we're quite open about this. We're not we're not cheap, but then we we tend to work with a lot of the world's biggest companies dealing with the most existential issues, and we're like, can you afford to get this? You know, um, wrong, and and therefore if we're paid well, then we don't have to sweatshop people. You know, then we can do have space and time and. You know, like I say, we blur the lines between management consultancy, sustainability consultancy, and communications consultancy, but we don't expect to deliver the margin of a management consultancy because we know how they get that margin. <laughs> so, you know, we 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 balance things out, and again, sometimes it works swimmingly, and sometimes you know it doesn't, and we have to tweak things. But the fact our employee survey says what it says, the fact that um, a week and a half ago we got named the best place to work in the UK. And by Provoke um, Media, who are one of two of our industry's um, major titles for the second year in a row, and it's predominantly based on employee uh, feedback from a survey they send out. I think we get it right, you know, in in the main. And of course, there are moments when things go wrong, but our model is built on charging decent fees so we can pay people one and we can look after them, you know, and that's why we can... You know, even our policies in terms of Matt and Pat, we have equal maternity and paternity policies. You know, that costs us again because you're doubling your risk, right, and your exposure. And I think it's after three years, it's five months full pay, and after a year three, I think it is, or something like that. But that is regardless of, you know, your gender, regardless of its adoption. Um, but, you know, we believe you invest in those kinds of things and it, it comes back to you. And by the way, it's quite a feminist move because I think some people don't see why in part we do that as well. We do it because the reason there's a pay gap in our industry is because if it's only ever women who take the mat leave, they start to fall back. So it's actually quite a feminist move um, to actually oh, yeah. pat leave because it's like, well, then the men and women in, in our business will, you know, both have the opportunity to, you know, to make their own choices. And, and again, it's about those individuals. So you know, we are driven. We are, as a founding team, absolutely driven by, you know, a belief that we want to leave a positive mark on this earth. You know, we do. And, and we're only four years old and we're only small, but we genuinely work with some of the world's biggest businesses and, and brands. And, and, and honestly, the pride I get in knowing that my tiny company has materially positively affected the world because of the size of the clients we're working with, you know, that's everything to me. Everything. I love that. And I especially love your approach to maternity and paternity pay because I have known a lot of small business owners who are like, frankly, I can't afford to hire women of childbearing age. But if you spread the risk equally, no one can afford to discriminate because if you're just like, well, that that male being might have children and he will take paternity leave. It means just get on with it. Hire people who are good and know that the policy is equal. And yeah, it's a baller move, Nick. I like that a lot. So thank you from women. So just, I mean, I'm aware, like, oh, this is fascinating. We could go on and on, but I still have some things that I want to ask. So, because I think this is such a beautiful insight, especially for people who run their own small businesses and think, think they can't afford something, a policy that does does support diversity or they're afraid to charge a lot. And I think that that is such a beautiful illustration of if you charge a lot, you can afford to pay people well and not work them like dogs as well. Like I've been in a position, you can hear an airplane landing behind me here in 
here in Oaxaca. But I've been in the position of once I raised my rates, people were like, well, you must be very good. And also keep an eye on your day rate. Maybe you should like clock off at six o'clock and go home while like the juniors that we work like dogs stay here till midnight. And I think there is sort of a master stroke and actually being quite premium because people, the energy of your relationship with clients changes. People value you more because they are paying you more. So I think also there's something in there, a dynamic to explore perhaps in future in our next conversation about, yeah, the energy of, of charging a lot and having people value you more as a result, perhaps. And then, and then importantly, you deliver that value because you have a loyal team who are damn good at what they do you know, because you look after them well and you allow them to be their true best selves. So do you, do you know what I mean? It, it all, if you think about it, it all just totally makes sense. You know, if I was being forced to play out of position in terms of my neurodiversity, I could not deliver real value. You know, I can deliver value because I'm allowed to be the best version of myself and I'm taken care of and supported. And therefore I do deliver genuine value to my clients. Do you see what I mean? It all, it all makes sense. You've just got to believe in it and know that, you know, there will be times when those values are challenged. There will be, you know, they are constantly. And, um, but that's when you know, you know, you really are a values-based business when you're challenged with them and you can look yourself in the eye and know you've done the right thing. Even though there will be times, like I've said, where some things I'm like, mm, do I feel a bit uncomfortable about that? But like I say, you, you pick it up and you move forward and you learn. You dive into the discomfort on a regular basis, which I love. I live in it. I live in it. Swim in it. Because one of my questions I always like to ask is sort of what are your own discomfort practices? I mean, you live in it, you work in it. But I guess what very consciously and personally are your practices? And it might be outside of work or it might be within work. But yeah, what are your discomfort practices that keep you expanding, that keep you learning, that keep you uncomfortable in a good way? Well, you touched on one of them earlier, which is, um, you said it better than me. I sound a bit weird saying this, but meeting strangers. <laughs> <laughs> but I do this all the time. And, um, you know, I try and meet at least one or two new people every every single week. And and it came from a place of deep discomfort when, um, when I stepped away from my previous um, agency, which I had a 50% stake in with another partner. And, um, you know, I lost my identity. I really did. I was like, who the hell am I? I've been Nick Community for you know, since I was in my twenties and, um, and I was also terrified. I just, cause I had eight months off that I would just get out of touch with the industry and not know anything anymore because I was living in the country at the time and very young children. And I'd volunteered to do things like teach crochet in the village school. So, um, I started going into London two days a week and just meeting people. And literally I'd read something interesting that someone said in the media or, or, or whatever, and just reach out on LinkedIn and say, no agenda, you know, but you fancy a coffee. And I ended up in the house of Lords and I ended up meeting like Rankin, for example, and lots of, you know, normal folk too. And, um, but part of it also was to see if I really could stand up to being an individual as, as opposed to, you know, a duo that I'd been for so long. And I was deeply discomfort. I'm sorry, in a place of discomfort. And I remember being invited by the PRCA to do a keynote speech um, before I started Blurred after Deaf Unity. I was standing up there like not even knowing who, how to introduce myself. I was like, I don't know who I am anymore. Um, so, but but going out there and meeting people and realizing people engaged with me, you know, I was like, no, 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 I can do this. You know, I am, I'm not this person that had in some ways been belittled in terms of my abilities in my previous company. You know, I am someone 
that, that can stand on her own two feet, you know. So that's one thing, constantly meeting people. And it also has the added benefit of expanding my mind. But the other is mindfulness. Um, you know, I'm the least mindful person you can meet. You know, ADHD and mindfulness don't really go hand in hand. But I was just thinking that. Good for you. Honestly, and when I spoke to this menopause specialist this morning, because what happens is I become manic because I work so fast, I go so 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 fast, and then I'm I'm on such another plane. I I can't bring myself down, and and I become hell to live with. And you know, it's very very difficult. And she said, um, yeah, that's called having a Ferrari brain, but a um, push bike brake. And I was like, oh my god, that's like the best description because you know i'm going as fast as a ferrari but i cannot i don't have the ability to put my foot on the brake so and the problem is once that um reaches a certain point you know the wheels come off and it, it it's not pretty um whereas mindfulness getting in front of that is you know it, it makes all the difference because it keeps me calm and on a, a more level um playing field but it was it's not it wasn't easy <laughs> to learn to do that you know not at all what are, what are your specific mindfulness practices because people hear mindfulness and they just think i have to sit on a cushion and close my eyes and you know like there are so many different types of wow. mindfulness practices. i actually have to be super disciplined because i can't do it i can't do it for two minutes or five minutes because i'm literally too distracted so it's the start of the day and it's a full half an hour and the only one that works for me, and I did a whole course on it, the only one that worked was um, a body scan way. You start with your toes, you're listening to a recording, and you get all the way through your body and you end with your head, but it takes half an hour. But I have to, I have to do it properly or not at all, or, or it doesn't work. But I think you may know this story, but I was the class dance, honestly. I was like, what do you mean breathe into your feet? And I just couldn't understand <laughs> yeah. it. And I, I hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. And the reason that I was doing it, by the way, is because I was given the choice by doctors of take antipsychotic drugs or learn mindfulness. And that was because my neurodevice brain really struggled in lockdowns. And I started having, um, I've forgotten what it's even called now. Again, that's the menopause, joy of joys, but um, repeated sentences in my mind constantly, all day long, all, all night long just the same thing and and the doctors were like if, if you just could go out for dinner with your friends it would break you know it's just the same four walls constantly and they were like either take these drugs that are normally prescribed to people with schizophrenia or bipolar bipolar or, or learn mindfulness so I, I chose mindfulness but um i started to get in I, I hated it all honestly i really did and then but i liked this body scan there was something in it and um so i started doing it quite regularly and um and amazingly extraordinary thing but I kept stopping on my left boob and um and Sarah from Girls Aloud had, had just died and you know there's quite a lot of stuff in the media and I was like this is ludicrous but I'm going to go to the doctors anyway and say look I've got no physical symptoms I've got nothing but when I do this body scan I keep pausing in the same place and um I think it was two or maybe three weeks later I'd had surgery which wow. is quite extraordinary and then I returned truly triumphant to the um mindfulness course as actually some kind of guru <laughs> you know and i discovered um, cancer through my body scan i know right and then it, it wasn't actually um cancer in full cancer in the end there, there was a problem um which is why i ended up in surgery but they didn't know until they'd taken various things out um but it was but and it was amazing you know what an amazing thing so had i not been neurodiverse had i not struggled in lockdowns you know, I could be sitting here in an entirely different 
state right now. Do, do you know what I mean? So anyway, I'm, I'm a big believer in it, but I find that helps me to be able to lean into the discomfort because, you know, like I said, my job is challenging. My home life is challenging with having very neurodiverse children. You know, it's not it's not easy. I wouldn't change any of it, of course. But um, these are th- these are things that help keep me you know, grounded and, and able to lean in. And and most of all, sorry, most of all is coaching. That is for me the absolute gold standard. And it was my coach who persuaded me to leave my own um company, you know, which I still look back on and think is the most phenomenal thing. And and that's why she's fundamental to the business now. Cause I was like, Crikey, if you can get me to do that, you can imagine what you could do with everyone. And she won't like me saying that actually. It's not that she persuaded me. She she just freed enough up in my mind for me to realize that something fundamental had to change and that I was, wasn't unhappy and that I could be so much happier and better off, you know, mentally and financially. And in fact, every respect by doing it differently with different set of people. And she was so right, you know, so right. So um, that's why coaching is fundamental to my business. Yeah. I love your answer melded both. Well, the next question and the one I asked, which is sort of what are your discomfort practices, but also what are your self-care practices? Yeah. And I think it's interesting that they're the same thing. You know, the things yeah. that keep you uncomfortable are also the things that keep you balanced, keep you taking care of yourself, keep you yeah. knowing yourself in a way that is helpful. Uh, You're right, yeah, they are completely the same. And I, I'm really uncomfortable with all of those things. I don't find them easy coaching and meeting strangers all the time and um, mindfulness, but they made me very uncomfortable, but they are literally equally, you know, make me who I am in a positive way as well. So they are both of those things. You're quite right. <laughs> My gosh, this is the best endorsement ever of the whole premise of this podcast. It's yeah, yeah the, the, the ability to be in discomfort does become a superpower. It does become mm-hmm. something that nothing can stop you when you're okay with discomfort, when you're okay with somebody saying no to you, when you're okay feeling awkward, when you're okay doing things you're not good at yet. What can stop you? And it's yeah, yeah it's a beautiful yeah, place yeah. to. But I guess again, it's because you know, because of your first question, you know, from a young age, I was mischaracterized as somebody. So when you feel deeply that sense of discomfort from a super young age, and then have to live with the discomfort of seeing black when everyone else sees white, do you know what I mean? In terms of how my brain works, you know, the discomfort genuinely is what's made me who I am. In, in in the very best sense of myself, genuinely. And like you mentioned, miscarriages before. I had six. It's horrific. I would never change it. Never, ever, ever change it. Because the discomfort and pain and horror of that meant that when I actually did get my two, you know, precious children, you know, I, I lent into motherhood with the right, you know, <laughs> um, level of energy and that I perhaps wouldn't have done. You know, I think I could have become a workaholic and, you know, my kids been something helpful and, and lovely on the side. You know, I'm embarrassed to say that, but I could well have done. Whereas the discomfort of going through what my husband and I went through meant that, you know, two o'clock in the morning, you know, baby screaming, I'm like, I'm all good with this. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Keep it coming because it means I have a baby. You know, wow. so so a lot of my life has been based on that. And and look, I never want you to think that I'm sitting here going, you know, where was me? Like I said, I'm an incredibly fortunate person. I know that. But equally, I you know, I do know some things about pain and um and I think it's important. And we talked about 
diversity and and yes we can assume certain groups i come to, to life you know come to the workplace with a bunch of um previous hardships but i'm equally really mindful that you know you can be a, a white privileged man and come with a shit ton of horror that might not be you know immediately obvious so all sorts of people need support to to be able to identify with and then lean into those discomfort areas so that they can be their their true best selves you know because that's how we all thrive that is a really good point too about not writing anybody off because assume they have a certain amount of privilege or perspective because assume you're wrong in some way because you don't you don't truly know someone until you truly know someone and it's about not making lazy assumptions we have that one of our five values is diverse and we literally explain what that means at every level of the company know what it means in everybody's specific jobs and it is about you know you don't make lazy assumptions you know in in any respect regarding somebody and what you see in front of you you know it's 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 really important because there are plenty of people of privilege i know we've had an incredibly you know difficult time as well so you know but that doesn't mean you don't try harder for the ones that you know obviously have as well yeah no that's a great way to just make it very human and not not fall into the trap of making it sort of politicized, which it so tends to be. So we are nearing the end of our time and I don't want to keep you, but what is, what is maybe a final thought you want to leave people with? Maybe if they're sort of grappling with some of the stuff we've talked about, if they themselves are neurodiverse or maybe they're starting a business, just anything, what would you like to leave people with as they go about their day after listening to this? Look, it's, I, I think it's, I believe this, and I say this to my children all the time, you know, you have everything you need <laughs> just because you don't um, conform, perhaps, or just because you feel you're introverted in an extroverted world or you're, you know, dyslexic or you're from a disadvantaged background or any of those things. It's like you've got to lean into that discomfort in terms of being like, no, 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 I'm good. I am all good. <laughs> you know, I may be built differently or I may have a different experience, but I am everything. That I need to be, um, and just and just kind of go for it. You know, don't bend yourself to be something else. Um, find a place and space that can accept you, and and if you can't, then then build one. You know, and then that's why I know my kids will be fine. You know, they will be fine because they're not like a lot of their peers. But you know, I can see the talent and the beauty and the strength and the opportunity. Um, and I guess the final thing there is my first point really about um, intersectionality as well. It's like, if you feel you have got this, then look around at those that might not. And what can you do in the same way that I've tried to do to perhaps lean into the areas where where perhaps a social background or an ethnicity may have played a, a role in an extra hurdle that, that with your help you might be able to dismantle. You know, I think it's, I'm such a believer in karma. I really am. I really am. And I'd really like to think that most people that know me think I'm a good person, you know, despite some, you know, sins in my past, like we all have. But I believe that it's like put good stuff into the world and good stuff will come back to you. But it all comes from a place of really believing in yourself as a human being, being just right as you are. That's a beautiful place to leave it. So I do want to just leave it there. And thank you for just being who you are, Nick, and being just so 
fun and bringing what you bring to the world in terms of your perspective, but then making it into something that, that supports other people and makes the world a better place. So thank you so much for being here. Honestly, thanks for having me. I've loved, I've loved it. Thank you. And I, and I love that you do this podcast. I think it's amazing. It's brilliant. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It will definitely have you back. So thank you to everybody listening to this and do let us know what you think. Check out um, Nick's information, which will be in the show notes. And feel free to reach out to Nick if you'd like. Absolutely. You can find me on LinkedIn. Wonderful. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five-star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast and for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable. <laughs>